Today's reading is from Ruth 2. Now Naomi had a respected relative, a man of worth, through her husband from the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field so that I may glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose eyes I might find favor. Naomi replied to her, go my daughter. So she went, she arrived and she gleaned in the field behind the harvesters. By chance, it happened to be the portion of the field that belonged to Boaz, who was from the family of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. He said to the harvesters, may the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. Boaz said to his young man, the one who was overseeing the harvesters, to whom does this young woman belong? The young man who was overseeing the harvesters answered, she is a young Moabite woman, the one who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She said, please let me glean so that I might gather up grain from among the bundles behind the harvesters. She arrived and has been on her feet from the morning until now and has sat down for only a moment. This is the word of the Lord. In place of, of a communal prayer before our, um, before our sermon this morning, Amy Sawyer is going to come and, um, and read something for us. This is To Glean After Ruth 2. To gather what is ungathered, scattered scraps left for the penniless, homeless, manless, society's less thans, leftovers, to reap and not to sow, to walk along the edges where the plow doesn't go. Her dirty hands comb through barley fields, a grain so rhythmically stitched, in it you can see all Eden's ideals. Her thumb strums the husk's rough grooves, as creation's perfection unravels in her palms. We know that bit about dogs and scraps and the master's table. We can reframe and explain, seeking dignity for dogs. But women know. Women know how a vinegar wine flows in our bloodlines, plow lines, food lines, picket lines. The bread we need now comes too late. Our blood and bodies given, our names unsung. We hold on to your story, named among the nameless, seed sown in us, your blood in his. For she sings, we sing, batter my heart, harvest me, thresh me, glean me from what remains. For we remain to be saved on a grape and a grain. Amen. Thank you, Amy. Um, for those who want to uh, meditate on that further, that will be we'll attach that to the podcast, and we'll have the, the text in the podcast notes, so you can you can sit with that a little longer. Um, have you ever wondered how God provides? How God provides? It could be a job, it could be housing or money to pay the rent or school fees. It could be a, a partner or a child or a friend, community. It could be provision for uh, mental health struggles or physical ailments. Have you ever wondered how God provides? Because that's what we're going to talk about today. 
Uh, I want to begin by giving a shout out to everyone who, who came to our open house. We had an open house at the new church office last night, and we had a beautiful time of sharing testimonies of how we've seen God at work. Uh, and it actually, it actually gave me the last piece that I needed to finish the sermon, so uh, it had been a bit of a grind this week, so thank you um, to all of you who uh, contributed to, to what you're about to hear. Uh, we're in the second week of a four-week series on the book of Ruth. And previously, or last week, we saw, we saw a famine that took a family to a foreign land. We saw death that claimed the three men of the household and the grief that followed. We met the two women who returned after the famine, Ruth and Naomi, both widows, meaning that they were socially and economically vulnerable. We heard an unexpected commitment, Ruth's to Naomi. Unexpected because Ruth was a Moabite. She was a foreigner who could have chosen to stay in her homeland and find a new husband, but instead she chose to tie her fortunes to her vulnerable widowed mother-in-law, committing to Naomi's people and Naomi's home and Naomi's God. And then at the end of the first chapter, we read these words, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Naomi had left with a husband and two sons because of a famine. She returned with only a daughter-in-law at the beginning of the harvest. As a reminder, as Matthew mentioned last week in kicking off the series, the story of Ruth is set in a different time, over 3,000 years ago, in a different place, almost 6,000 miles away. It's a different context and circumstance and culture. So if you think about it this way, in 2019, this year, we are as far in time from the events of Ruth as people living in the year 5,000 are from us, assuming the earth is still in existence and Jesus hasn't come back yet. That's a lot of time. Right? And many things can get lost in translation. Um, so, for instance, uh, there's a moment in, 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 when, when Boaz shows up and he says, to whom does this young woman belong? And here in 2019, we can roll our eyes and be like, dude. But it's, he's not being misogynistic. He's saying, how is she connected? How, how is she here and who is she connected with? Because that's how society worked. But our guiding questions... Our guiding questions for understanding and interpreting scripture in general, and this series in particular, are what did the story mean for the listeners of the day? And then what does the story mean for us? Okay, what did it mean for them? And what does it mean for us? And so using that lens, one of the questions that I think is posed for us by this particular chapter, there are, are, are a number of them, but we don't have time to dig into them all. But one of them is, how will God provide for Naomi and Ruth? And by extension, how does God provide for us? Because here's the interesting thing. In the story of Ruth, God is mentioned and talked about several times, quite a few times. But rarely is God actually mentioned as an active character. Okay? This is not like Genesis where the Lord said this and made this happen and spoke to this person. It's not like Exodus where, where the Lord sent this plague or parted the waters of the sea or dropped manna from heaven. In the story of Ruth, God seems to be largely absent. God seems to be largely absent. So how will this God provide? Well, I'm titling this message, Providence and Participation. So that may be a hint. And I'll give you the punchline right now. The lesson we learn from this chapter of Ruth's story is that God provides in large part through people of compassion and commitment. 
people who care for one another and for the common good. Or to put it more personally, no matter what your situation is, no matter what our situation may be, we can be, we can be, we are called to be, and we are needed to be instruments of God's blessing. No matter what your situation is, we are needed to be God's instruments of healing and grace. But I'm going to start by giving a, a summary of what happens in Ruth 2. And then we're going to zoom in on some key moments. So this is what happens in Ruth 2. Ruth goes gleaning in order to find food for herself and for Naomi, uh, which we heard uh, Lisa read. She happens upon the field of Boaz, who happens to be a relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech, through, though she doesn't yet know this. Boaz has heard about what Ruth has done for Naomi, and he extends generous hospitality to her, a foreign widow, ensuring that she is protected and provided for. And we'll, we'll, we'll see some of that in a, in a moment. At the end of the day, Ruth returns to Naomi, uh, sharing the food and sharing the news, and Naomi celebrates the happy coincidence that Ruth found her way to, to Boaz's field, as Boaz is not just a relative of theirs, but a particular kind of relative which we'll hear more about in, in a couple of weeks. And the chapter ends by letting us know that Ruth gleaned on Boaz's property for the entire harvest season, first the barley harvest and then the wheat harvest. So it's a, it's a beautiful, charming little anecdote, but I want to dig a little deeper to unearth what the story might have meant to its initial listeners so we can better understand what it means for us. First, let's talk about gleaning. All right. Gleaning was the practice of going through the fields at harvest time, picking up the bits and pieces that the harvesters missed. Now, why was Ruth doing this? Because they needed to eat. Right? She and Naomi needed to eat. Remember, they were returning to Bethlehem as widows. And in a patriarchal society, without a husband to care for you and protect you and provide for you, there wasn't much for you. But there was gleaning. Now, we're going to get a little bit technical for a moment, so stick with me. The stipulation providing gleaning rights is found in the law of Moses, in Leviticus 19, where God said to his people, when you harvest your land's produce, you must not harvest all the way to the edge of your field, and don't gather up every remaining bit of your harvest. Also, do not pick your vineyard clean or gather up all the grapes that have fallen there. Leave these items for the poor and the immigrant. I am the Lord your God. Now, in our capitalistic culture, leaving things unharvested might seem inefficient or wasteful. And in some cultures of the ancient Near East, they would leave a portion of the harvest on the field, but they would do it as a sacrifice to their local gods, their local deities, as a thank offering for the harvest that they had received and a, and a prayer for future favor. But the practice instituted by the God of Israel was to use this excess to provide for the poor, for the widows, for the orphans, and for the immigrants, those who were most vulnerable in society. And, and, and saying, I am the Lord your God, at the end there, it was like a divine seal. It was a sign off. It's saying, this is who I am. This is who I am. You know, actually, gleaning was just one part of God's plan to care for those in need. So gleaning took, part, took, took place every harvest time, so about a couple of months every year. And then every three years, 10% uh, of everything that had been harvested would be brought out in order to provide for the Levites, 
that's the priestly tribe. This was called the poor tithe. You can find this in Deuteronomy 14. It was brought out, 10% of everything that was collected was brought out to provide for the Levites, the priestly tribe that didn't work the field, as well as the immigrants, orphans, and widows who live in your cities so they can feast until they are full. This is not just about feeding the, the poor your scraps and your leftovers. They were to feast. So that was every three years. And then every seventh year was what was called a sabbatical year. Matthew, Matthew recently got back from his sabbatical, which was a time of, of rest. And so the sabbatical year was a year of rest. Exodus 23 tells us, For six years you should plant crops on your land and gather, it, gather in its produce. But in the seventh year you should leave it alone and undisturbed so that the poor among your people may eat. You should do the same with your vineyard and your olive trees. The sabbatical year was supposed to be a year when the fields would lie fallow, when the land would rest and recover, when the workers would rest and recover, and the poor would eat of the crops. Barley, wheat, grapes, olives. This was part of God's intended care. This was about providing for everyone. It was certainly about providing for everyone, but it was also about becoming a generous people. It was about becoming a generous people. Question, who does God seem to direct these instructions to? To those who have or those who have not? To those who have. To those who have with privilege or those without? To those with privilege. And so British Old Testament scholar Chris Wright puts it this way. This is a, a, a long quote, but it, I think it just gets at the heart of this. The relief of poverty in Israel, therefore, was built into economic and legal structures, not left as a matter of private charity. This law that was typical of Old Testament law, it addresses the issue not from the angle of rights but of responsibilities. That is, it assumes the right of gleaning on those who do not have anything, but it commands the landowner to make sure there is something to be gleaned. This law thus sets possession of resources in a framework of duty to God and others and rejects the idea that private property is an absolute right, giving one freedom to extract every last drop of income or profit from one's assets. Its point is, the law's point is that whatever the economic system, there must be adequate provision for the poor. Ownership confers responsibilities, not just privileges. And this, get this, this is the practical meaning of holiness. This is the practical meaning of holiness. See, what I want us to understand from what may seem like a nerdy, technical, history-driven diversion from the story is that one way God's provision comes is through just laws and righteous people who are willing to enact them. Just laws and righteous people who are willing to enact them. In Ruth's time, the law came through Moses, but it still required the people of God to live it out. And there's, unfortunately, tragically, there's ample evidence throughout Scripture that largely in the words of the prophets that the people of God didn't do it. They didn't follow the law. They didn't always do that, particularly when it came to economic justice. But Boaz does. Boaz does. 
And upon learning who she is, he says to her, haven't you understood, my daughter? Don't go glean in another, in another field. Don't go anywhere else. Instead, stay here with my young women who are working in the fields. Keep your eyes on the field that they are harvesting and go along after them. I've ordered the young men not to assault you. And whenever you are thirsty, go to the jugs and drink from what the young men have filled. And then later on, a few verses later at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, eat some of the bread and dip your piece in the vinegar. She sat alongside the harvesters and he served roasted grain to her. She ate and was satisfied and had leftovers. Anybody love leftovers? And then she got up to glean, and Boaz ordered his young men, let her glean between the bundles, and don't humiliate her. Also, pull out some, of the bale, some from the bales for her and leave them behind for her to glean, and don't scold her. What he's doing in this situation, I, I realize like, we can hear this with that lens and be like, wow, that's super condescending and patronizing, but it's in, in the culture of the day, what he was doing was offering her his protection and his provision. He was instructing his workers to keep her safe. And he makes sure that she and Naomi are provided for even more generously than he lets on with her, right? So he, he, she goes off and gleans, and then he tells his workers, hey, leave more for her. Because I know what she's got. She, I know that she's not just picking for herself. She's taking care of her mother-in-law. Leave more for her. In verse 17, we're told she returned to Naomi with about an ephah of barley. It was probably about food for a week for the two of them. Now, gleaning was typically a subsistence activity in that you only usually got enough to last a day or two for yourself. And so Boaz is being very generous here. This, this observance of the law, not just observing the letter of the law, not just doing the bare minimum, but going to the heart of the law to care for the poor and the widow and the needy, this is what the Bible calls justice and righteousness and holiness it's a term that we've misinterpreted and misunderstood and, and tragically has, has, has fallen from much of, of our vocabulary. Holiness is not just personal piety. It is a care for the common good as well. It's loving God in the way we love others. Boaz is a vessel. He is a conduit of God's provision to Ruth and Naomi, which Naomi points out. When Ruth returns with her bounty and shares whose field she gleaned from, Naomi says, May he be blessed by the Lord who hasn't abandoned his faithfulness with the living or the dead. In other words, God is being faithful to us, Naomi is saying, through the generosity of Boaz. God is being faithful to Naomi and Ruth through Boaz's generosity. God is providing for them through Boaz. Now I want you to take a moment to think of someone through whom God demonstrated his faithfulness to you. Just a moment. One person through whom God demonstrated his faithfulness, his provision to you. How did God provide for you through them? Uh, the other month, um, I got a note from, from someone who had been a semester intern in D.C. back in 2012. I hadn't, I hadn't seen her or really heard from her probably since then. But she, she messaged me and she shared that the, the, just the simple act of, of me opening the door and remembering her name when I greeted her one Sunday seven years ago was part of how God started making D.C. feel like home for her. I just opened the door and I remembered her name. That's it. If God provided for you through someone and they don't know it yet, 
Maybe you can send a quick text or an email or a handwritten note. This is part of developing the muscle of seeing how God is at work. Okay, and acknowledging it and recognizing it and giving thanks for it. And the more we do it, the better we get at it. And that's why, one of the reasons why we did uh, last night at our open house, why we had that testimony time. Because we need those moments of giving thanks, of naming the things, the, the moments where God has stepped in. So Naomi says, God is being faithful to them through the generosity of Boaz. But God is also being faithful to them because, unbeknownst to Ruth, but known to us since the beginning of the chapter, Boaz is a relative of the family. And, and in a culture where family meant everything, he was a particular kind of relative. And Naomi said to her, this man is one of our close relatives. He's one of our redeemers. We'll hear more about that, as I said, in a couple weeks. But in her own way, Naomi is acknowledging the providence of God in this chance encounter. Chance encounter. See, see, Ruth goes gleaning to provide food for her and Naomi. And the text says, this is what the text says, by chance, it happened to be the portion of the field that belonged to Boaz, who was from the family of Elimelech. And then by chance, just then, just oh, Boaz just happened to arrive from Bethlehem. It's, it, it's a little bit like a Hallmark movie. <laughs> she just happened to be on his field. And then, oh, he just happened to show, oh, and he's wealthy too. And, <laughs> but it's interesting to consider, isn't it, whether God leaves anything to chance. Right? The, text, the text clearly says by chance, or in another translation, as it happened. And one way of interpreting it, it sure, is with a wink and a nod, you know, by chance, uh-huh, uh-huh. I know what you're doing, God, by chance. <laughs> but this is the same phrasing that pops up in Ecclesiastes 9, where it says the same fate, the same chance awaits the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, fate, chance, coincidence. By chance, she happened to glean on the field of Boaz, who happened to be a relative of her late father-in-law. And by chance, Boaz happened to arrive at his fields that day and noticed her. Maybe when the Apostle Paul says God works all things together for good for the ones who love God, that includes chance and coincidence. That reflects the nature of God's providence, God's loving provision. Let me highlight something else here. When Boaz asks his overseer who Ruth is, the, the young man who was overseeing the harvesters answered, she's a young Moabite woman, the one who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She said, please let me glean so that I might gather up grain from among the bundles behind the harvesters. She arrived and has been on her feet from the morning until now and has sat down for only a moment. Now, what do you notice about the young overseer's description of Ruth? What does he point out? Her, her respectful request, her diligence, she's been working real hard, her, 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 what else? She's a young Moabite woman, the one who returned with Naomi from Moab. She's a Moabite woman from Moab who came back from Moab with Naomi when Naomi came back from Moab. The narrator doesn't want you to forget that Ruth doesn't belong that Ruth is a foreigner, that she's an other. Because as Matthew mentioned last week, there, this is the rub. Ruth is a Moabite. 
And there were generations of hostility between Moabites and Israelites, even to the point where it says this in Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23, Ammonites and Moabites can't belong to the Lord's assembly. They can't. Not even the 10th generation of such people can belong to the Lord's assembly. As a rule. Because they didn't help you when you were on your way out of Egypt. And because they hired Balaam to, to curse you. See, the listeners of, of the day would have felt this tension from the very beginning. From the very beginning, they would have been like, oh no, the family's going to Moab? Oh no, the sons are marrying Moabite women? Oh no, the Moabite woman wants to come back with Naomi? And then, oh wait, she's going to help her? And then, oh wait, she's, she's working to support her mother-in-law? Ruth is upending the negative stereotypes in the same way that Jesus did when he told the story of the Good Samaritan. But Boaz also refuses to live into the animosity. He chooses instead to lean into the other parts of the law, the parts that talk about welcoming immigrants and loving them. Leviticus 19, any immigrant who lives with you must be treated as if they were one of your citizens. You must love them as yourself because you were immigrants in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is who I am. This is why you do this. Deuteronomy 10, that means you must also love immigrants because you were immigrants in Egypt. Now, what do we do with these two statements? On the one hand, love the immigrants as yourself, and on the other hand, except for Moabites. They can't belong as a rule. Are these two commandments, both in the law of Moses, are they reconcilable? Did Elimelech and Naomi and their sons sin by intermarrying with Ruth and Orpah, Moabite women? Was this why? Was this why Naomi balked at bringing Ruth back with her? Because she knew that a warm welcome would not be waiting for her daughter-in-law. Here's what I think, based on what Boaz does, because he clearly leans into one of the two laws, doesn't he? Our human instinct may be to exclude those who are different or other. In this case, in Ruth's case, those who are immigrants and foreigners. But God's instinct and desire is to include them and for us to do the same. In fact, not just to include them, but to love them as if they were already part of us. And I think Boaz gets this because not once, not just once, but twice, does he not just stick to the letter of the law? Not, he doesn't just do the bare minimum of what he's called to do. He has chosen to seek to live into the heart and the purpose of the law. He has chosen to interpret the law in such a way that prioritizes and provides for those in need. And perhaps this is why he also advocates for her protection. Not just because she's a young widow, but because she's a young Moabite widow. He knows that she might be vulnerable to animosity or abuse. And then there's this consideration. Maybe in God's providence, it was also Boaz's background that inclined him to compassion. So we learned last week that, spoiler alert, Boaz and Ruth get married and have a kid. I think we're spoiling that every week, so just <laughs> don't be shocked. And they have a son, and that son becomes the grandfather of King David. 
And so Boaz and Ruth are ancestors not only of the greatest king of Israel, but also the king of kings himself, Jesus. But in the genealogy of Jesus at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we also learn about Boaz's parents. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Who was Rahab? She was the, the only other Rahab in scripture is the prostitute who harbored the Israelite spies sent by Joshua when they were scoping out the fortified enemy city of Jericho. And she was spared because of her actions. She was spared when Jericho fell. Just like Ruth, Boaz's mother was one who had chosen to leave her home and her people and to throw her lot in with God, with the God of Israel and his people. It would not be too far a stretch of the imagination to think that Boaz might have endured some mockery growing up as the child of Israel and a child of Jericho, the son of a foreign woman. Who knows, even, even as a man of privilege and wealth, which we are told he is, as one respected as one of the leaders in the town, I wonder if he still felt like he didn't quite fit in. And maybe that cultivated a soft spot in him for others who didn't quite fit in. In God's providence, in God's provision, Ruth ends up at the field of one who is not just related to her family, but who in his own story bears witness to the welcome and inclusiveness of God. It's that, it, you, you can't make this up. <laughs> the ways that God is weaving his story. God provides for us in large part through people of compassion and commitment. See, while, while Ruth and Boaz do get married and they do have a child, we, we, we haven't gotten there yet. There's no hint of romance here, and there isn't meant to be, and in that culture, there didn't need to be romance for marriage anyway. But we shouldn't need to know what we're going to get out of something before we choose to help, right? Before we choose to serve, before we give. Try to leave aside what you know about the end of the story for a moment and what you may be bringing from our culture. Oh, oh they, they end up together. He must be interested in her. I mean, look at this hallmark circumstance. They all, oh, she just happened to be, and he's got money. And leave aside what we're bringing. And what you have instead is a story of God's provision through people to one another. Boaz provides protection and resources to Naomi and Ruth. Ruth provides service and sustenance to her mother-in-law. Naomi provides guidance and experience to Ruth. Each of us has something different to offer the body and, and to offer the world that God calls us to love. We don't all have to, nor should we expect to, nor are we able to provide in the same ways. But each one of us has something to offer. It may be resources, it may be connections, it may be our education or our experience, the things we've learned. It may be physical abilities, it may be expertise in a particular area that may help someone else, whether that's you know, financial planning or legal services or handyman work. It may be just being present with someone through a tough time. I think about this in our church. Some folks volunteer on the prayer team to help support and lift up folks who need prayer. Others make sure things run well and there are as few distractions as possible. Others disciple our younger saints, the kids laying foundations for and sowing seeds for lives of faith. Others make sure we're fulfilling our commitment to love our neighbors well. And others give financially 
underwriting the work and the service and the community engagement that we're able to do. Everybody gives something different, but everybody contributes. Or to put it another way, think about this with community lunch, which we'll partake in right after church. On the second Sunday of every month, we have a potluck lunch together instead of taking communion during the service because this is our way of fellowshipping together, of breaking bread with one another, of being the body of Christ to one another. Someone's got the mains, someone's bringing the sweet potatoes, someone's got the stuffing, someone's got dessert. We don't all have to bring the same thing and we don't all have to bring everything. This is what it means to be the body of Christ. God's provision is interconnected. God provides for us through others. And we, that means that we are the means of God's provision to other people. And in our compassion and our commitment, in giving and helping and providing, even though we may get nothing in return, we are imitating and emulating and participating in the compassion and commitment of God. Right? We are being with one another as Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, was God with us. That's what we're doing. So there are two ways. Two ways I want to invite you to respond today and this week. Ask for help and offer help. Ask for help and offer help. First, ask for help. Ruth and Naomi had a need. And they asked for help, for favor, for permission to glean. And that gave Boaz the opportunity, not just to say yes, not just to fulfill the legal requirement, but to go above and beyond in his generosity and his participation in the providence of God and so to become more who he was made to be. So ask for help because that not only requires... That's my son. That not only requires, asking for help not only requires admitting to yourself that you might not be able to handle everything on your own, which is okay because you weren't meant to anyway, but it also provides an opportunity for God to provide for you through someone else. So often we're afraid to ask for help because, you know, we don't want to impose on someone or, or we don't want to inconvenience them or maybe we're afraid of being let down. But I can tell you from my experience that when someone asks me for help, I consider it an honor and a privilege, not an imposition or an inconvenience. So you might ask by, by going to one of our prayer counselors for prayer in just a moment. You might write a prayer request on your connection card. You could, you could email me or Watson or one of the elders or just, just a friend to talk about whatever it is you're going through. Let me say it again. It is not a bother or an inconvenience. It is an honor and a privilege. Second, offer help. Offer help. Ruth took the initiative to say she was going to go gleaning. Boaz took the initiative to give Ruth more than she was asking for. Offer help. Be generous. Find ways this week to bless someone, whether they know it was you or not. Okay? Go out of your way. Inconvenience yourself. Sacrifice something to benefit someone else, even if you don't get the credit. And if you're not sure how to help, you can talk to me or Watson or one of the elders. We'd be happy to find ways for you to serve. Ask for help and offer help. Both, not either, not one or the other, both of them. 
Both of them, because no matter what situation we're in, right, we can always receive the grace of God and we can always be bearers of the grace of God. Right? No matter what situation you're in. We always need the grace of God and we always need to pass it on. The book of Ruth began with the phrase, in the times when the judges ruled. That is, in the days when every person did what they thought was right. In the days when chaos and darkness were prevalent. In the days when nobody knew when or where God would show up. In the days when no one was quite sure where to look for hope. In the days when God seemed absent. In those days, Ruth and Boaz demonstrated that God is at work. Always at work. Providing through his people, through people of compassion and commitment, people who care for others, who love their enemies, even those they are told that are their, who love their neighbors, even those who are told that they're their enemies, who offer an outrageous welcome, and who aren't afraid to sacrifice their own comfort or privilege or resources for others. Brothers and sisters, we ask for help and we offer help to one another as instruments of God's blessing to one another, bearers of the good news to one another. But let's not also forget that we need to ask help from God too. He will provide in his time and in his way. But don't forget the giver in seeking his gifts. And then it isn't help in the same way as with human beings, but likewise, we offer our gifts, we offer our resources, we offer our learning, we offer all of who we are in the service of God so that he might use us for the work of the kingdom. Now, if you're, you're here and, and, and you've never considered yourself a follower of Jesus, but you know you need a God who provides, you know you need someone to intervene in your situation, you know you need some chance to go your way. Let me tell you this, in Genesis 22, our God is called Jehovah Jireh. It means the Lord will provide. He can, and He will, and He does. Sometimes we just have to look up and look around. Let's pray. God, we, every single person in this room has an area of need in their life. Every single one of us is, is carrying a weight that is a little bit too heavy for us to bear. And so in those spaces, Lord, we ask for, for you to provide. Whether you have already revealed how you are going to or how we think you're going to or whether we're, we're, we're just kind of waiting we have no idea if or when or how you will. And so God, I pray for a reminder of your character, of who you are. Pray for a reminder of what you can do and what you are doing and what you will do. And God, I pray that you would break down the walls of pride in us that, that either keep us from asking for help or keep us from offering help. The walls of resistance. We weren't meant to do life on our own. We weren't meant to live in silos. We were created for relationship and for community. And that's how we flourish. That's how we thrive. And so I pray, God, 
for anybody who is here, you've laid on their heart a name, a person, either that they need to reach out to for help or to help. God, would, you, would your Holy Spirit just, just, just give a gentle nudge? Just push, push them over the edge. Just let them do it, God. so that we might receive more of your grace as we offer your grace. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the divine community. Amen.